This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending the faith. In other words, for doing apologetics. I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and the host for this podcast. In this episode, our very first episode, we're going to focus on two apologetical themes that arise out of the Liturgy of the Word for the first Sunday of Advent, year A. The first is the so-called Rapture Doctrine at least the pre-tribulation version of it. This comes up in the Gospel reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 44. The second apologetical theme is the doctrine of once saved, always saved, which the second reading from Romans 13, 11 through 14 gives us an opportunity to talk about. So let's start with the Gospel passage from Matthew 24, 37 through 44. It reads as follows, quote, For as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus is speaking here, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this. If the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. So too you also must be prepared. For at an hour you don't expect, the Son of Man will come. Notice that Matthew records Jesus saying, As were the days of Noah... So will the coming of the Son of Man. That's verse 37. And then later, then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left behind. You see, so it's argued, the righteous are taken away and the wicked are left behind to experience the final tribulation. For some Christians, this is proof for the pre-tribulation rapture which is the doctrine that faithful Christians will be secretly raptured or taken up with Christ before, pre-trib, the final tribulation at the end of time, after which Christ will come in glory and establish the new heaven and the new earth. But is this what Jesus is teaching? Let's take a look. It's true that Jesus says some will be taken and others will be left behind, but the question is, Who are the ones being taken? The rapturous view says the righteous are taken away. But if we read carefully, we discover that's not the case. Here's our first supporting evidence. The comparison to the days of Noah. Who was swept away or taken away in the flood? It was the wicked. Noah and his family, the righteous ones, They were the ones who were left behind on the earth to experience a new creation. Now, someone might counter and say, but couldn't we interpret the other way just as easily? The wicked 
were left behind in the flood to be destroyed, and Noah and his family, they were swept away with the waters. On this reading, the wicked would be the ones who are left behind, and the righteous would be the ones taken away. Well, in response to this counter, we come to our second supporting piece of evidence that it's the wicked that are being taken away. And that is Matthew explicitly identifies the ones taken away in the flood as the wicked. Check out Matthew chapter 24, verses 38 through 39. Quote, as were the days of Noah, so were the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. Who are the ones swept all away? It was the wicked, the ones who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. If it's the wicked that are taken away in the flood, then it's the wicked that are taken away at Jesus's coming. Because as Jesus says, as were the days of Noah, so were the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the third piece of supporting evidence is the subsequent parable that's not in this gospel passage, but it comes immediately after in verses 45 through 51, a parable of the wicked servant that's involved with the wicked being taken away. So check this out. If that wicked servant says to himself, Jesus says, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunken, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and at an hour he does not know and will punish him and put him with the hypocrites. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. Notice in this parable, it's the wicked ones that are put out, put him with the hypocrites. It is the wicked that are taken away. So think about this. If the wicked are the ones taken away here in this parable about Jesus' coming, well, then those taken away in the previous parable, the gospel reading, which concerns his coming, must also refer to the wicked. It would not make sense for the righteous to be taken away in the parable that compares to the days of Noah and the wicked ones being taken away in the very next parable. That would be unintelligible. So that it is the wicked that are taken away in the subsequent parable to the gospel reading, it gives us further evidence that it must be the wicked that are taken away in the coming of the Son of Man that's compared to the days of Noah, which is the gospel reading. Now, finally, we have a fourth piece of supporting evidence that it is the wicked ones that are being taken away in Jesus's teaching about the coming of the Son of Man compared to the days of Noah, and that is found in Luke's version. In Luke's version of this teaching of our Lord, we have revealed that it is the wicked who are the ones being taken away. And Luke's version is found in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 37. You can read the whole entire passage on your own. But the key verse is starting in verse 37. After Jesus tells the apostles that some will be taken away, the apostles ask, where, Lord? Now, clearly the question is directed to where the people are taken. 
since the apostles know where the people are left behind, namely, in the field and grinding at the meal. And in response to where some are taken, Jesus says this, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered, or as some translations have it, where the body is there, the vultures will be gathered. That's there in verse 37. Now, for the rapturous view to be correct, the place where these individuals are taken, taken must be heaven. But is this what Jesus is referring to, where the eagles gather? I argue no. The Greek word for eagles here, etoi, uh, plural for atos, it generally refers to a large carrion-eating bird, a bird that eats decaying flesh of dead animals, like an eagle or a vulture. Now, sometimes it's used simply to refer to the bird aspect of the word, right? A bird, without any focus on the decaying flesh-eating activity. And we have evidence of this in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, where it speaks of one of the four living creatures as an eagle. The same Greek word, etos, is used there. But here in Luke, it seems that it's being used with an emphasis on the flesh-eating aspect of the bird and thus could be interpreted as a vulture, which, again, as I mentioned, some translations, such as the New American Bible, goes with that translation. Now, why is that? Well, notice that Jesus says, where the body is, there will the eagles gather. If Jesus were simply referring to the bird as such, then why emphasize the body? It appears that what Jesus is saying is that the place where these individuals are taken is a place where decaying flesh is picked apart by flesh-eating birds. <laughs> that doesn't sound like heaven, folks. So rather than the righteous being taken away and the wicked being left behind, it's the opposite. The righteous are left behind and the wicked are taken away. The wicked are taken away to experience torment, and the righteous, well, they stay behind to experience the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, like Noah and his family. So, I ask you the question, do you want to be left behind? <laughs> Based upon this reading of the text, the answer to that question should be, you darn right I want to be left behind, yes because it is the righteous who are left behind, not the wicked. Okay, so that does it with the first apologetical theme that's arising out of the gospel passage. Now, as I mentioned before, the second apologetical topic that this week's Liturgy of the Word gives us an opportunity to focus on is the once-saved, always-saved doctrine that's embraced and believed by many of our Protestant brothers and sisters. Recall, some Protestant Christians believe that salvation is a one-time event that's restricted to the past. And once you're saved, well then, you're eternally secure in that salvation. You cannot lose it. This week's first reading from Romans 13, 11 through 14, however, proves otherwise. Check out what Paul writes, quote, And do this because you know the time. It is the hour now for you to awake from sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. 
The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and licentiousness, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Notice in verse 11 there, Paul writes, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now keep in mind, Paul is writing to Christians who are already saved, and he even includes himself, a saved Christian. Think about this. Why would Paul speak of salvation being nearer if he and the Christians to whom he's writing had already secured their salvation? He speaks as if there's some aspect of their salvation that's not yet possessed. This being the case, it's not true to say that salvation is a one-time event in the past and is complete and done and over with. And furthermore, if there's some aspect of our salvation that's not yet complete, well then, wouldn't it be possible to miss out on it? Now, it's because of this not yet aspect of salvation that Paul gives the Christians in Rome a stern warning. So, Check out the warning again. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and licentiousness, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Why would Paul give such a warning for these Christians and even direct the warning to himself if they were eternally secure in their salvation. To state it differently, that Paul gives them and himself the warning concerning these works of the flesh indicates that he does not believe they and himself are eternally secure in their salvation. The warning would be unintelligible if they were secure in their salvation. Like, Paul, why are you warning us about this? We don't need to care about this stuff. We're eternally secure in our salvation. There's no need for you to warn us about these things. Now, a Protestant might respond and say, well, the reason for the warning is so that the Christians don't miss out on the rewards awaiting them in heaven. They can be eternally secure, so it's argued, with regard to receiving the gift of eternal life, but not secure with regard to the rewards of heaven, whatever those rewards may be. Maybe from a Catholic perspective, differing degrees of beatitude and experience of the beatific vision and other rewards that will be present for those in heaven. So maybe that's the reason why Paul gives the warning to these already saved Christians. Well, the problem is that here, Paul warns against sinful activities, right? So, for example, drunkenness and licentiousness, that he elsewhere says keeps one from the kingdom of God, i.e. heaven. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, it's the kingdom of God 
that will not be inherited due to drunkenness, not rewards in the kingdom of God. Furthermore, in Galatians 5.19, Paul says that the sin of licentiousness, the same Greek word, auselgeia, keeps one from the kingdom of God. So in this passage from Romans 13, he uses the Greek word auselgeia, licentiousness. In Galatians 5.19, he uses the same Greek word, licentiousness, and says, such a sinful deed will keep one from the kingdom of God. Not that it will keep one from receiving the rewards in the kingdom of God, but keeping one from the kingdom of God. So consider this. That Paul warns saved Christians to not fall into drunkenness and licentiousness. Here in Romans 13, in the first reading for the Liturgy of the Word here, it implies that he thinks it's possible for them to not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's inheriting the kingdom of God itself that Paul has in mind, not the rewards of the kingdom. Hence, Paul's teaching here in Romans 13, 11 through 14, refutes the common doctrine of once saved, always saved. Brothers and sisters, it is possible for us to forfeit the inheritance of the kingdom of God by way of committing sinful activities such as drunkenness, licentiousness, etc., and all the other mortal sins that he's listing here. It is possible for one who is already initially saved to lose that gift of salvation. And so, of course, the exhortation is that we ask for God's grace to uphold us in the good, to uphold us in charity, and to not permit us to defect and fall into mortal sin so that we can persevere in friendship with God until our death and thus receive the great reward of eternal life itself. Well, my friends, that does it for this episode, our very first episode for the Sunday Catholic Word. We looked at two themes that are relevant to doing apologetics that are arising out of this particular Liturgy of the Word for the first Sunday of Advent, year A. The rapture, at least the pre-tribulation view of it, which comes up in the Gospel reading from Matthew chapter 24, and secondly, the doctrine of once saved, always saved, which comes up in the first reading from Romans chapter 13. Thank you, my friends, for subscribing to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I had a great time sharing with you. Please be sure to tell your friends about it and invite them to subscribe as well. And be sure to be on the lookout for next week's episode. I hope you have a great first Sunday of Advent. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts.